Hello, and welcome to Rethinking Rehab with Dr. Shane Smith. I'm a licensed physical therapist practicing out of Naples, Florida, and I've been treating individuals with both orthopedic and neurologic problems for the last 10 years in town. It's been a very busy season this year for me. Um, I've had some transition aspects in my office. I've had some staff changes in the office this season that have kind of put a little bit more onus onto myself. I've uh, been in the process of trying to get a website change done. Who would think that would take a lot of your time, right? Uh, so it's been difficult for me getting on here to do podcasts weekly like I typically like to do. However, I had a little gap in time over my lunch break, so I figured I'd fill that time in with a podcast today. And, you know, today's podcast is fitting for those in Naples here at this time, as well as fitting for those around the country uh, that are listening to this, hopefully with things showing some signs of improvement with the temperature out. Um, I had a patient from Chicago in here earlier this morning tell me that they've had quite a mild winter up there so far this year, which is always good to hear. Um, it wasn't so mild a few weekends ago when my father was in town in Illinois. He, uh, he dealt with negative 30 fields of like temps, but that must have been the only, uh, the only cold, cold weekend they dealt with up there this season. So Naples has been uh, a little bit different this year. It's been very busy down here. The amount of traffic in town is larger and greater than it typically is. For those out there listening that don't know much about where I'm from, uh, I live in South Florida. I'm actually in Southwest Florida. So we're directly across the state from Fort Lauderdale, just north of like Miami area, but on the West coast of Florida. So we deal with a huge influx seasonally, um, typically in season. So the months of December, January, February, March, and maybe a tail bit of, of April, maybe the first half of April, um, we're looking at roughly double the population in town over those five, four or five months. So when you think about municipalities, when you think about restaurants, uh, healthcare-based facilities, all of them just get absolutely overrun uh, this time of the year. And it's just due to the amount of people down here wanting to enjoy our weather uh, that we have. I mean, as I'm speaking to you right now, it's 80 degrees and sunny outside right now. No better day to go golfing than today, but instead we're here working and uh, doing a little recording of the podcast. So something that's popped up more times than I expected to in the last week or two since doing a podcast before uh, is related to walking form, walking biomechanics. So today's session will be entitled, What's the Right Way to Walk? And, you know, for everybody, there's a slight variance with walking form. We're not all made off an assembly line that have exactly the same length parts, the exact same size joints, the exact size muscles that move things, the right and the exact same form of breakdown in our bodies. They're, they're, they're different. Everybody is slightly different. So certain variances, certain little modifications, do this instead of that. Don't do this much of this, do a little bit of this. Those factors is what makes everybody unique and, and makes everybody's walking form and walking movement style a little bit different. However, there are some similarities and some constants, we'll say variable-wise, with a walking form. And, you know, you think everybody out there that isn't handicapped to a certain degree walks, um, you know, from the, the time you're a little over a year old uh, until you get to a certain point that you can't walk anymore, you're walking. I mean, it's a, it's a physical task 
virtually everybody does. Now, you may do less or more of this task than others, and you know that's variable from person to person, but we all should be able to walk to a certain degree unless we've had, you know, like I said, some injury or some debilitating thing occur to our bodies. Um, and, and what stays the same regardless of the person is the general movement pattern involved with walking. And what I wanted to go into today is some of the basics with walking, some of the things you may already know about, but the, the whys, you know, the, the why is this a good thing to do or why is this needed with a walker? I can get away without doing that because I've never done that with walking and I've been fine up until this point. Um, you know, everybody has a different point in their lives when things break down on them, you know, whether where, where injuries start becoming more regularly or um, where something doesn't quite feel right or they've overdone it to a certain point and they've just never been right since then. There, there's always this moment in time for somebody where something is fine until it isn't. Um, and, and, and that attribute can't really be quantified easily from my viewpoint. I can't look at somebody in my office and say, let me guess, it's been three months since you changed what you did. You know, it's not like there's a specific time. Oh, once you walk improperly for exactly two years, that's when you really start to go downhill and start having breakdown occur. I have some people that modify, alter how they move. And within a couple days or a couple weeks, things start hurting them. I've had people that injure themselves and have modified how they've moved for years. And all of a sudden now it starts to become problematic. That when it happens is going to vary person to person. Just realize most people that have some form of issue with walking, whether it be back pain, hip pain, um, something just not feel right, fatigue, dizziness, it, you know, there, there is a point in time where it's going to become problematic. And once that time hits, that's when you have to really self-reflect and say, what have I changed? What do I need to change to get back to some form of normal movement remblance? And I find typically a back injury or a hip injury to be the most common things that occur that modify movement. And because an injury occurs either the hip or the back, which are components involved with walking and standing erect upright, we change those basic pillars of movement to help how we feel at that point in time. So let me give you an example. If I were to have reached and bent down and picked something up and hurt my back, I may walk with less safety, less uh, movement in my low back due to fear of it hurting. So I'm gonna become a little bit more stiff, rigid with my spine when I walk. I might still move my ankles and feet, I might still move my hips and knees the same way I would, but there's gonna be some resistance with movement going up into the area I've hurt. Same will go with a hip injury. Um, I had a patient in here just, I think it was Thursday of last week, and we went over some lunge-based movements. Now, backstory, this is a patient that hurt themselves lifting, has some history of back issues, some history of left hip issues, and upon all of our exercise progressions, everything tolerated well. Thursday of last week, I brought up for the first time, let's try to revisit the lunge. And just bringing up the concept of that movement was scary to this patient. She, she didn't want anything to do with it, felt that the best option is just to avoid that altogether. And, and I feel that that's not an uncommon response that I see with patients, that they have an injury, whether it be, as I said before, to the back or for this example, a hip injury. Um, instead of trying to address that injury head on and move in a more controlled manner or strengthen muscles that are going to be involved with that movement that will limit injury going forward, 
they just completely shut it out. I'm no longer doing that. Um, as if that will solve these kind of problems. And to touch back to what we started talking about with walking, let's say you had a hip injury. Um, one that I dealt with two weeks ago was a woman that was walking, I believe she got up to about three to four miles a day she was walking. And her goal with her walks was to go to a coffee shop that she liked a few miles away from home. So her positive feedback was, I want a coffee right now. The only way I get a coffee is if I walk to go get one. And by walking to get the coffee, she's getting exercise in, which was a great combination for her until it wasn't, until she had walked too much and hadn't done any subsequent stretching or any other form of exercise other than just the walk, she overloaded and overdid her hip. She dealt with hip bursitis. Because of the hip hurting her, she then shifted her weight primarily to the other leg that wasn't injured and that resulted in irritating her low back. So kind of as I talked about earlier with there is going to be something that occurs at some point that I can't specifically tell you because it's different for everybody, that alters your walking movement form from normal to abnormal. Um, for this woman, that was that something. It was doing too much of the same thing, not stretching, not moving in different planes of motion to challenge muscles differently, and she got inflammation to her hip. And because of the inflammation to her hip, she modified how she walked and shifted her weight primarily to the opposite leg, which resulted in irritating her low back on that side, which gave her nerve pain down that foot. Because of this snowball cascade effect that occurred for her with walking, the solution was I better stop walking. Two to three weeks go by, weight starts to gain back on, mental processes start to get very uh, depressed and uh, irritated with the progress being made. The weight loss that was coming off of her body is now being put back on because of a movement modification change that wasn't corrected. And that's kind of where I want to talk about today. You may be in this position where I have hurt myself previously and ever since that injury, ever since that something, it just hasn't been right since. It's because your movement pattern changed with the injury and you haven't readdressed your new movement that is incorrect. And those new incorrect movements are giving you irritation to something else in the body. So when we start talking about normal movement, what should we typically see regardless of the variances from person to person? There should be an alteration between left and right foot movement. That foot that is moving should be stepping in front of the opposite leg and it should extend past the one on the ground. So that would be one of the first common things I see mistake-wise with people's walk is that increasing the step size or the stride length of your walk is scary or may have caused some discomfort in the body at some point, you have shortened your stride. Another way you can think about this shortened stride with walking, imagine you're walking across a frozen lake and you don't have snowshoes on. And if you're in a pair of tennis shoes taking a big stride on ice with your weight shifting differently underneath your body, it makes you feel unstable that you could fall. And this concept of walking on ice and kind of flat foot step to flat foot step uh, directly underneath the body is a very, very common walking pattern I see. And it's extremely um, biomechanically inefficient to do it this way. Um, the whole reason our body is designed the way that it is is to allow us to move most efficiently with the least amount of energy required. 
If you think about we were hunter-gatherers at one point in time before our modern societies, our entire livelihood of survival depended on our ability to move from one place to another in a fairly timely manner, as well as to be able to get up and go quickly if any threats arose around us. Um, I mean, if you go back to cavemen with dinosaurs, do you imagine if you saw a velociraptor, how fast you'd have to move and, and how quickly and good your agility would have to be to not be eaten by a dinosaur? Um, I heard a really sad stat, kind of a side note to this podcast, but somewhat relevant. After the age of 30, 80% of people will never run again. Um, as someone who's in his mid-30s that runs pretty regularly, the idea of not being able to run after 30 is very, very sad. Uh, that would entirely be due to injury, weight gain, and or deconditioning so severely that you just physically can't do that anymore. Um, these are things we should all be able to do. Um, if you want to be able to walk the beach or walk uh, a nice nature trail when you're 70 and looking at uh, retirement years, you better be able to run in 30, 40, 50. Otherwise, you can kiss walking in your 70s goodbye. Um, things slow down as we get older, and movement is one of them. That's why it's important why you still can move to move. And why talking to you about walking and biomechanics of walking is very important for everybody, regardless if in your, you're in your second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth decade of life. It really doesn't matter. You've got to keep moving. So we talked about one of the big issues people deal with, with a injury or worrying about re-injuring a old injury, and that is increasing stride length. So trying to take a little bit larger step from one to the next increases the size of your stepping, which also increases the uh, biomechanical efficiency of your body. So we weren't meant to walk little small choppy steps. We can do that if we are going over something very unstable or unsafe that we need to be cautious of. But with normal walking, we need to increase our stride. Most people don't take a big enough stride and by not increasing your stride length, you're not letting muscles stretch and contract to their optimal position. So your glute is much more efficient, your butt muscle, at extending your hip if it's doing it from a slightly flexed or neutral position. You've got more range of motion for that muscle to fire. So if I take a bigger step forward and I flex my hip up because it's in front of my body, while that hip is moving from a flexed position through extension, that larger range of motion for the joint allows for better muscle propulsion activation. If my hip hardly moves at all, it's really hard for a muscle to help move it if it's not moving much, as well as our legs. If you think about leg muscles, if we sit around and don't do much, they get very stiff and tight. Stiff and tight muscles are very challenging to stretch out to take a bigger stride. So that's kind of where flexibility starts to become an important aspect. The nice thing about walking is it's an active exercise that will help with your flexibility. So if you just go for a walk for a couple minutes, walking how you normally would, and I'll say after five minutes of normal walking, try to take a little bit bigger step. Like see if you can just stride a little bit larger. So maybe just a couple extra inches you're trying to reach for each step. That's going to include how far I bring my foot forward to initially touch the ground, as well as how long can I leave it on the ground behind me before I have to push off with my toe. And why would this help? 
Well, let's think about the positioning of our foot with propulsion. So if I initially touch the ground with my heel in front of my body, as I weight shift towards that side, there is a larger range of motion for my leg and hip to move in, which allows muscles to work longer and to increase force production. If I can increase more force in muscles as I'm walking, it makes getting to that next step easier. It's almost like my momentum is pushing me to the next step as, as opposed to having to pick my body weight and pull myself to the next step. So I feel that making sure you're taking a big stride when walking is really important. It's underutilized as well as just thinking about the heel-toe mechanism of walking. If I initially strike the ground on my heel, Typically, the foot has to be in front of me to just touch the heel only. It's very difficult that the foot is underneath you to touch just the heel first. You literally have to go up on your toe on the other foot just to feel the, the heel only touch. Now, where does the heel touch first without question or without concern is when the foot's in front of you. So when you come through to a step, your initial contact should be the heel as well as as your weight shifts to the foot, it should roll through the middle of the foot as it's underneath you. Why is it good for the, the, the foot to be flat directly underneath us? Is it allows our arch to do what the arch is supposed to do. The arch is supposed to collapse and reform with movement to act as almost a suspension system on the body. If our foot can act as a suspension system, it helps deal with what's called ground reaction force. Ground reaction force is the entire weight of your body hitting the ground and that opposite force coming back up into our body. It diminishes, it lessens the severity of ground reaction force. Why would you want to lessen that? Well, if you've got bad knees, you've got arthritic hips, you've got a bad back, we want to lower the amount of force going through our body as not to injure or irritate it. So by utilizing our arch correctly underneath our body when we're walking, it helps act as a suspension system to take force off of our hips, knees, and spine, which many of us need to do as we get older. Lastly, if you think about the toe off as your propulsion push place, the toe comes off best when the foot is behind our trunk. Also, if we think about propulsion pushing force, if it's behind our body, it can actually push us forward as opposed to if it's underneath and we push through our toe. It's just having us do a calf raise. It's pushing our body weight vertically up, which doesn't really help with the whole biomechanics of movement. So the heel-toe mechanism is entirely intended when you hear therapists or you hear me tell you heel-toe, it is to get the foot in front of us when we initially touch the ground, primarily with the heel only. The foot will be flat underneath our trunk when it's directly underneath our body to allow for suspension shock absorption on our body. And it will then reform rigidly behind us when the toe is the last thing touching the ground to help push us to our next step. Those three mechanisms of movement from the foot and ankle really set up everything else to function correctly. And I've had many patients just think about that heel toe push off and initial contact phase, totally change the way they walk and improve the pain rating felt with walking as well as reduce the uh, exhaustion felt after walking because their bodies are so much more efficient at moving. That is gonna be a big key takeaway to improve your abilities of uh, body to move. Uh, another big one that I see most commonly done besides the heel-toe mechanism not being in place with walking 
is the arms have a part to play with our movement. Um, if you look at anybody run a race, we could even talk about the Super Bowl that took place last night. Any of those players on the field running, how many do you see run with their arms static by their sides? And it's kind of a funny thing to think about if we saw football players just have their arms down by their sides and they take off sprinting and never move their arms, they'd all look very, very goofy out there on the field. Same thing with the sprinting race. If you have the Olympics are coming up this summer, um, four by 100, four by 200 meter dash. When's the last time you saw one of them take off out of the, the block sprinting with their arms just dead weight by their sides? The answer is never. You'll never see that happen because to move to this speed and you know the, the extent that those professional athletes, whether they be a sprinter or a football player, do, they need to utilize everything in their body to make their movement as efficient and as fast as possible. Well, the upper torso plays a huge role in propulsion mechanisms. We have tissues that attach into different spots of our body. Everybody kind of can think about a muscle attaching from a tendon to a bone, uh, but the fascial connections are the part that most people don't consider. And we have things called slings in our bodies. So you have fascial slings and fascial lines. Um, the, the example I'll give you is if you sat down in a chair, straightened one leg out and bent forward, you'll feel a big stretch down the back of your leg. However, if you did that same stretch and then tucked your head into your chest while doing it, that stretch may go from your leg hip region all the way up your back. How is that possible? You're not stretching the back muscle by doing it. The answer is there's a connective tissue connecting point between those two. And that connecting tissue is what we're referring to as these slings. So you have connecting tissue from one lat muscle, which attaches from the front of your shoulder into your low back. Um, as your right hip moves forward, the left arm is back. It will move counter to that limb. So you can think about the left arm and the right leg working in conjunction with one another and the right limb and the left leg. So the contralateral limbs work together via these slings to help your body's movement be more efficient. And if a professional athlete needs to use their arms to maximize efficiency with movement while they compete in sport, you can damn sure bet that you need to do the same thing to compete at a comfortable level with your activities that you do as well. So just to get out and walk is one thing, but to get out and walk as efficient as you can allows you to move without as much discomfort, as well as it increases your distance with walking, as well as your ease with walking. Many people complain to me that they feel exhausted and tired after walks or things get stiff and tight halfway through walks, thus they can't go as far as they would ideally like to. The big issue is you're not moving efficiently. You're not moving to the maximal efficient level that you could move. And if you did move maximally efficient, you wouldn't feel as fatigued. You wouldn't feel as much tightness in the middle of your walk. Um, 
So those two big bullet points I feel get so overlooked with walking, heel-toe mechanism, feel that movement through the legs, increase the stride length, the step size that you're taking. Many people move in a shortened stride length, and if they could just increase that stride, they'd move faster and more efficient, as well as get those arms swinging. Let the shoulders rotate a little bit. All that trunk movement just assists the lower body in doing what it needs to do in an efficient uh, manner. And I know if you implement some of these arm swings and increasing stride length and thinking heel-toe contact when you're walking, your walking speed and distance will improve and overall discomfort rating with walking should improve as well. Many people will take this advice but won't implement it. And I hope for you listening out there, you do take that next step and actually attempt and implement some of these issues that I'm describing that might be affecting your enjoyment of walking, especially if you're in Naples. You know, here we are, February 12th, 80 degrees and sunny out. Doesn't that sound like a wonderful day to go for a walk on the beach? If you're in Naples and you're having issues with some of these walking uh, problems we're talking about in today's podcast, Feel free to give me a call. I'm more than happy to help you in the future. Improve your walking ability so that you can enjoy this wonderful community we live in with less pain. For everyone else out there, keep listening, keep moving, keep grooving, and have a happy day, everyone. Take care.